0: Before I share the answer to uh, the, my answer to the table talk question, I would love to hear you know a, a couple famous people that our young adult family has met. Who is the most famous person that you've ever met? It's probably more exciting than my answer. So, any any exciting? I've met Tripoli. Tripoli. That's pretty good. Yeah, Joseph. I'm at Newsboys at the Grand. That's pretty good. Newsboys, Tripoli. Yeah. Okay, nice. Yeah, Taylor? That is way more famous than anyone I've ever met, that's for sure. Yeah, Mr. Mr. Z? I don't know who that is. <laughs> now, Mr. Z, if I were Andrew, he would throw you under the bus, but I'm not, so I'm very sorry for all the... The turmoil he put you through last week. What? No. Now, two of the most famous people that I've ever met are two uh, musical artists. One is the lead baritone in a group called Living River, and the other is a, a worship pastor at Highland Community Church. Let me see this picture circa 2013. Yeah. So. There we go. <laughs> Whoever thought Argyle was a good idea, I'd like to <laughs> talk to them. My, my serious answer, this, if you didn't guess, wasn't my serious answer. Um, it's ironic, I, I lived in Southern California for almost two years, not very far from Hollywood, and you would think when you live in California you, you meet famous people, right, not me. The most famous person I ever ran into in California was Primrose from The Hunger Games, and I didn't even talk to her, I just saw her in Santa Monica. Um, But it was ironic that I moved to Southern California and I had to be in the Santa Ana Airport to meet a Green Bay Packer that I'd watched my whole life. Um, James Jones caught a ton of touchdown passes from Aaron Rodgers. He's like 10th all-time receptions for the Packers, 9th touchdowns, and I got a picture with James Jones. There we go. There's James. You would think I would have opened my eyes in the picture, but that's fine. (laughs) This, I was so excited to meet him, I was just holding back tears. That's really what was... So, Now, I put that on my Instagram, and yeah, I got a lot of likes because you know I have a lot of friends in Wisconsin, but did, did me meeting James Jones change the course of my life? No. Did Mr. Z meeting whatever musical artist that I've never heard of, <laughs> did, that, did that change the course of your life? No, probably not that's great. Yeah. And I don't, maybe James Jones, he's a good guy too. I don't know if he's a Christian, but um, and we're honest. We, if we met a celebrity, it hasn't changed the course of our life. But when we're in Exodus 19 tonight, Israel, they, they encountered someone far greater than a musical artist, far greater than a professional athlete, far greater than a, a pop star. They had an encounter with the God of the universe, with the intention that their encounter changed the course of their life forever. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. That's where we're going to be tonight. Um, This is take two on Mount Sinai. Moses was in the same place when we met two weeks ago. Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, it's the same place. That's where he encountered the burning bush. And now we find ourselves back in the same place in Exodus chapter 19. I just want to read the first two verses. I'm reading out of the ESV. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They sent out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. There, they encamped before the mountain. Okay, let me pause there. It says, on the third new moon, that's just a fancy way of saying three months. It had been three months at the, since they left Egypt. they have been wandering in the wilderness for three months, and now they come to the same place. This was a place that was familiar to Moses, right? This is the place where he encountered Yahweh at the burning bush, and he got his dramatic call to ministry. He got the biggest promotion of his life. He went from leading a couple hundred sheep to leading a couple million people, and was the promotion that Moses wanted? No, it was the last thing that he wanted to do. He wanted to keep being an 80-year-old shepherd in the wilderness, but God had different plans. Moses, again, not the person you and I would have picked to lead a people out of Egypt, but that was God's man, a man of character, and he leads the people away from Pharaoh. But imagine, just think, of the difference between the two mountaintops. Horeb in Sinai, the burning bush and where we find ourselves in Exodus 19. A lot happened for Moses in the valley. He goes all the way back to Egypt where he spent the first 40 years of his life. God uses him for these plagues, at least 10 plagues, devastating plagues in the nation of Egypt. And Pharaoh goes back and forth and says, you can leave, you can't leave, you can leave, you can't leave. Finally, after the 10th plague, Pharaoh kicks Israelites out of Egypt, but then he changes his mind again, chases them all the way to the Sea of Reeds. God parts the sea, Israel crosses, the waters crash. You know the, the account? Pharaoh's army is decimated. And you would think after that, you know, the people of Israel, they, they encountered the power of God. They saw God work in an amazing, miraculous way, lifting them and rescuing them from Egypt. You would think they'd have trust for decades, right? <laughs> Wrong. They don't get very far. They get to Mara, and they're, they're thirsty. They're hangry, and they're dehydrated. And instead of going to Moses and saying, you know, I, I, I need a bottle of water, right? They start whining, they start grumbling, they start complaining. But God is gracious and gives them water at Mara. Well, it's a couple of days later, they decide that they're hungry and instead of asking politely, they start whining and grumbling and complaining. And God graciously gives them manna, this mysterious bread that falls from heaven. Well, a couple days later, they're thirsty again and instead of asking politely, what do they do? They whine, they grumble, they complain to Moses, and God graciously gives them water from the rock. Moses, it'd been three months of this leadership roller coaster. So imagine if you're Moses, how you'd feel to see Mount Sinai in the distance. That was the place where you'd met with God. That was the place where you encountered God's holiness, and you talked to him, and he called you into ministry, and, and then you went through this valley, and now you're back. It was that place of rest, that place of shalom. You, you have that place. Maybe some of you grew up going to... a a Christian camp, whatever camp that would be. Maybe that camp is that place of rest, that place of, of knowing you'll encounter God. That was Sinai for Moses. And as he approached the mountain, I imagine that the phrase, God is faithful, just resonated in his mind. And God, you, you did what you said you were gonna do. God, you fulfilled your promise. Because in Exodus 3, verse 12, God looks at Moses and says, you're gonna come back, and worship me on this mountain with all of the Israelites. That's the sign. And in moments when Moses wanted to doubt, there he saw Sinai in the distance, and he knew God was faithful to fulfill his promise. So there, the entire nation, they find themselves back on Sinai. You might not realize that at the base of the mountain, Israel camped there for 11 months. 59 chapters of the Bible are devoted to this extended mountaintop experience for the entire nation of Israel. It's when they received the law. And certainly there were high points and there were low points of their time at Sinai. But Moses begins preparing the people for their own mountaintop experience. I'll start at the end of verse 2. There, Israel encamped before the mountain. Verse 3. Well, Moses went up to God. The Lord called out to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. I'll pause there. That's a picture of um, how a mother eagle would teach her young to fly. She'd put them on her wings. It's God rescuing Israel out of Egypt. Even though they couldn't save themselves, God redeems them, he saves them, he rescues them. Verse five, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God starts using the covenant language. God already rescued the people. He already redeemed them, not by anything, that he, anything they'd done, but by his purpose and grace. And they respond to their salvation with obedience. They respond with obeying the covenant. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? God saved us, not by anything that we've done, but by his grace, we respond to that rescue, that salvation with obedience. And that's exactly what we see here. But I want us to focus in on verse six. Look at that one more time. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests. Um, Not an easy phrase. The only time in the entire Old Testament that that two words are put together like that. A kingdom of priests. It's even more ironic when we remember that the priesthood wasn't even established until a couple chapters later. They didn't have priests yet, though Aaron was kind of like a priest. They, that wasn't formally established yet, but that was just for the descendants of Aaron, part of one tribe. Here he's saying that all of Israel will be a kingdom of priests, a priestly kingdom. What in the world does that mean? Well, consider the role of a priest for a moment. A priest is an intermediary. A priest is a go-between. A priest was the one who would offer sacrifices for atonement on behalf of the people, the one that stood in the gap between God and his people, the one who would enter into the holy place, the most holy place on the day of atonement, with the blood of the sacrifice, offering uh, the blood for the forgiveness of his sins and the sins of the people. He was the intermediary, the go-between. But God calls his people, not just the one priest, he calls the entire nation a kingdom of priests. Here's what it's saying. God's design from the beginning was that the nation of Israel would be a light to the nations, that they would bridge the gap, they would be the go-between between God and the nations of the world that is, the rest of the world, the sinful world around them, saw God's relationship with his people that they might turn to God. That was the design. But is that what happened? <laughs> no, not at all. Israel, they didn't follow the covenant. They disobeyed God. They broke the covenant. They fell under God's discipline. And what happened? They weren't a light to the nations. They were a laughingstock to the nations. They weren't a witness to the world They didn't do a good job portraying God's love to the nations, but God's design from the beginning was that they would be a kingdom of priests, that they would bridge the gap. See, this passage, it might apply to us in more ways than we realize. We've had an encounter with God. Now, we haven't had an encounter with God like Israel is about to have in Mount Sinai. We've had an encounter with God on Calvary, haven't we? That if we've turned from our sin and we've trusted in Christ for our salvation. We know God in a real way, a tangible way, a relational way. That's our encounter. And that's our big idea for tonight. Has an encounter with God changed your life? Has an encounter with God changed your life? Maybe you see that on the top of your notes. But this idea of a priestly kingdom, a kingdom of priests, Peter actually helps reinterpret this for us underneath the umbrella of the new covenant. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. He says this, but you, he's talking to the church, he's talking to believers, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you will proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You hear what Peter said? You church, you young adult family, you are a royal priesthood. So the, the promise that applied to Israel now applies to us. God has designed us to be a kingdom of priests, to bridge the gap between his greatness and the rest of the world with the purpose of being his ambassadors, proclaiming the excellencies. I love this. Proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness in his marvelous light. That moment, darkness into light, is the moment when we become a Christian, when we experience God's goodness and grace and mercy, and we experience marvelous light. And then we get to be his ambassadors to a dark world. He's called us to be a light. He's called us to bridge the gap. So we have three questions that I think this text encourages us to answer tonight. Here's the first. Am I a bridge or am I a barrier? Am I a bridge or a barrier? Peter helps us see that we're ambassadors to the world around us. We bridge the gap between our sinful world and God. We're as ambassadors. So are you being a good bridge or a bad bridge? Well, maybe a word picture um, will will help illustrate. Here's two fairly famous pedestrian bridges in two different parts of the world. The first uh, is in Singapore. This is called the Helix Bridge. It's really cool. Um, Many different colors. It's a Footbridge it crosses the Marina Bay right in downtown Singapore, and it's designed to look like a strand of DNA, um, and all the different colors. There's even uh, letters that light up with the different types of DNA. It's it's really cool. This came, uh, opened up in 2010. See when I look at the this this is just saying like begging me to walk across it, it. Right? Isn't that how you feel? I just walk across the Helix Bridge. Compare that with the Trift Bridge, which is in the Swiss. Alps. This is a, a little bit of a different story. Um, this is the highest pedestrian footbridge in the Alps. It is over 500 feet above the surface of the ground. Uh, no, over 300 feet above the ground. It's over 500 feet long. Um, this is not for the faint of heart um, if you're uh, a little bit scared of heights. Who, who thinks, you know, no questions asked, yeah, I would absolutely just run right across this. Okay. On the other hand, who's a normal person that feels a little? (laughs) Which one do you look more like in your relationship with the world? How are you portraying God to the world around us? Are you inviting people to know the joy of relationship with the God of the universe? Or do you portray God in such a way that people are like, there's no way that I want to walk across that bridge? See, we put barriers up in our life in a couple different ways. We might put barriers up in our beliefs. It might sound like this. You can only cross my bridge if you share my values. You can only cross this bridge if we're the same ethnicity. You can only cross this bridge if, if we come from the same background. You can only cross this bridge if we share the same morals. You can only cross this bridge if we vote for the same candidate in 2024. See, we put barriers up um, because we want people to be like us or have the same ideas of us before we even have a conversation about spiritual things. We can also build barriers through our behavior. How about that new coworker that just started at the office? Do they know you're a Christian? If not, what if they found out tomorrow? Would they be surprised because you've been talking like a sailor for the last three days? Or would they say, yeah, that, that's, that's right. I can tell they've been acting different in the office. Good bridge or bad bridge? How about your neighbors? Your neighbors, do they know, do they see Christ in us and how we interact with them? Or are we just so busy all the time that we barely even have time to wave and say, hello? How about relatives? Are relatives see us seasoned with grace and patience at family gatherings? Or do we sneak in and out as fast as we can and do the obligatory Christmas hugs before we go to the next family gathering. Do the people around us, do they see God in us? Are we a light? Or do we portray God in such a way that people don't want to have a relationship with him? Are you a good bridge or bad bridge? Are you building a barrier for people to see God? Because we need to balance both truth and love. We need to be radically amazed by the love of the cross while being unconditionally committed to God's truth. Let's keep reading in our text. Verse 10. It says this. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them. Today tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. On the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. I'm going to pause there. Interesting. God is commanding Moses to get the people ready. Consecrate means to sanctify or uh, to make holy. Prepare yourselves to meet God. On the third day, you're going to at least go up part of the mountain and have this dramatic encounter with God. But before then, you have to wash yourselves. you got to do laundry, which to us, that doesn't sound like a big deal. But we have two million people hanging out in the desert with one water source. Can you imagine watching all of those people try to do their laundry in that one water source? That would be quite the sight to see. But that's not the hardest thing with the text. For me, the hardest thing with this verse, whoever touches the mountain shall be what? Put to death. Harsh? Extreme? Anyone think, God, really? Like, can can we have a lesser punishment than the death penalty? See, that might feel extreme. It might sound extreme until we consider the gap between our holiness and God's holiness. That's our second question tonight. Do I underestimate the greatness of God? Do I underestimate the greatness of God? I shared this last week at the third Monday briefly. Um... I'm convinced one of the biggest problems in my life, in our life, is that I can have too low a view of God and too high a view of myself. I think that's a problem with cultural Christianity in general, that we have too low a view of God. God is love. God is grace. He's there for us. He answers prayer. We sing worship songs that can sound more like a Taylor Swift love song than a worship (laughs) song. I I just want to prove it to you. I, I did some research today. I thought this was funny. Um, I printed off the lyrics to the top song on Christian radio. I just want to read them to you. And I want you to tell me Christian song or country song? Hey. Looking out my window, feeling the crescendo, sunset on a quiet sea. How artistic. Sitting with the ones that all forever love, we're waiting on a flash of green. And even when the nights got cold, you've always held me close. You're the only rock I could ever stand on. You're the only one for me. The sun goes up. The sun comes down. This old world keeps spinning round. I'm here traveling down this long and winding road. Seasons come and seasons go. Take me high. They leave me low. But I'm still standing on the only rock I know. You're my cornerstone. See, if it wasn't for the one word at the end, cornerstone, I would say, oh, that's got to be a country song. But it's not. It's the song that is all over the radio right now. I don't have a problem with the song. I don't have a problem with the artist. I have a problem with my own heart. I think the song indicates maybe where a lot of us are at, that we have too low a view of God. Is God a God of grace? Yeah. Is he God of love? Absolutely. But he's also holy. He's other. He's separate. He holds the World in the palm of his hand, he can measure the universe with the span of his finger. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He's God, he is so beyond us, we can't even comprehend it. And it's not just us that has a problem with the low view of God, it's not just our culture. <laughs> we see that over and over again throughout scripture. Think of Second Samuel chapter six. There's a guy named Uzzah. A little story about Uzzah, it's not a very happy story. The Ark of the Covenant, you know the Ark, you've watched the Harrison Ford movie, right? The Ark of the Covenant, (laughs) it gets captured by the Philistines. The Ark is like the symbol, the the Ark is the symbol of God's presence, right? Um, And and it belongs in the Holy of Holies. Like This is like the thing, and God's presence resides above the Ark, and then the Philistines capture it. So that's, that's problem number one. Well, David wins the battle, he gets it back, but there's some things that you never did with the ark. See, so you never touched the ark ever. Uh, you never put the ark on, ark on a cart ever. It was always, uh, it had poles that went through it and the Levites carried it on poles. Well, what David did, which looked a lot more like the Philistines than the Israelites, is he put this ark on a cart and parades it back to Jerusalem. Well, the oxen, they stumble. The ark starts tumbling off the cart and Uzzah, instinctively puts his hands up, touches the ark, stabilize it, what happens to Uzzah? He's killed in an instant. Instantly killed. And we read that text, and I think, God, really? Like, is that really necessary? And actually, David had the same reaction, so I feel a little better about myself when I have that reaction. David had the same reaction. But it comes from the same problem. We have too low a view of God. We don't see the distinction, the difference, the gap between God's holiness and our sinfulness, our humanness. That for us to reach up and, and touch the ark was a defilement of, of God, of the presence of God. And the punishment was, was death. God takes his holiness seriously, and we need to as well. See, as we think about the text in 2 Samuel 6 of Uzzah, when we think about Israel on this mountain, they couldn't cross this, this barrier, well, they did, they would die, right? But God was gracious, he, he told them that three times, no one was able to say, well, I, I didn't know better, they built the barrier, but this text serves as a reminder of God's holiness. But there's a distinction, isn't there? You and I can approach God anytime we want, there's not a barrier in our relationship with God. We don't have to fear death just by entering into God's presence, do we? But that's not because we're any better than Israel. That's not because of something we've done. No, it's because Jesus took down the barrier. But God's the same. His standard's the same. Don't underestimate the greatness of God. You know, when I consider God's greatness, it surprises me how often I hear Christians use God's name in vain, flippantly as an expletive, as an expression of surprise. I hope that it makes the hair on the back of our neck stand up when we hear someone use Jesus' name as a curse word. And it hurts me when I hear uh, a brother or sister use our God's name in that way. We forget that don't take the Lord's name in vain is the third commandment. It's a big deal to the Lord. So maybe that means as a family, that if we hear someone use God's name in a way that isn't respectful, that in a very kind, and a private way, we can hold one another to a higher standard and say, No, let's not talk about God like that. Let's choose a, a different way to express our frustration out of respect for our Lord. But when we understand the greatness of God, it leads to a greater reverence, it leads to greater respect. In some ways, it even leads to fear. Look at verse 16 in our text, Exodus 19, verse 16. Here's the moment that the people had their mountaintop experience. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and and God answered him in thunder. The Lord Came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Pause there. Can you imagine what that would have been like to be one of the Israelites? They walked past the barrier up to the foot of the mountain after their solemn three days of preparation. And there's this lightning, there's this thunder. God descends on the mountain in this intense pillar of fire. There's smoke billowing everywhere. Then they hear this trumpet sound that they'd never heard before. And then God starts talking to Moses. Moses can understand him, but presumably the people couldn't. All they heard was the loudest thunder of their entire life. This was a wild experience for the people. Unlike anything that they'd had, they'd seen the waters part. They'd seen the plagues. This was new. Listen to how the people respond in the next chapter after God gives the Ten Commandments. Look at chapter 20, verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us, we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, don't miss this oxymoron. This is really interesting. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Doesn't even make sense. Don't fear, but God has come to test you so that you'd fear. (laughs) Do you catch that? What in the world does that mean? Well, there's two different types of fear in the text, aren't they? What are the people afraid of? They're afraid of death. They're afraid that just by being near God, by hearing his voice, they're going to be killed instantly. They had a a fear of God. And Moses says, no, you don't have to fear death. But instead, you need to have a healthy fear of God. But did you notice the reason? Look at the end of verse 20. That the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Should our fear motivate our obedience? Absolutely. That's our final question tonight. Should fear motivate obedience? Absolutely. There's times in Scripture we see a command to avoid fear, but that's based on our circumstances. Commands like don't fear death, don't fear our spiritual enemy, don't fear persecution. But when we see fear in reference to God, it's positive. Think of how Solomon summarizes the entire book of Ecclesiastes fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the chief end of man. Or think of Proverbs 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we want wisdom, it starts with the fear of the Lord. Over and over again throughout the law, the first five books of the Bible, the people are commanded to have a fear of God. It's in Scripture all the time. But how often do we use the phrase, the fear of the Lord? Not very often. We talk about worshiping the Lord. We talk about serving the Lord. We talk about loving God. Great things. But fearing God, not something that comes out of our mouth very much. Fear in our world is always bad. It's negative. The presence of fear in our life is the source of all of our problems. We read Christian self-help books like Fearless and Brave and Fear Not, and we're crippled by fear today more than we ever have been before. We're afraid of a terminal diagnosis. You're afraid of losing your job. You're afraid of a recession. You're afraid of not being able to make ends meet. You're afraid of that relationship falling apart, and he or she will walk away on you. We're afraid. Our fears are connected to our desires. We fear losing what we love the most. I'm convinced we don't need less fear, we need more fear. We need more of the right fear. We need more fear of the Lord. One pastor defines fear of the Lord in this way, a reverential awe. I like that. The fear of the Lord is a reverential awe. It's not a crippling fear. It's not a phobic fear. It's a reverential awe. Now, fear leads to obedience. Because when we have a reverential awe for the rule maker, for the king, then we're going to listen. We're going to obey his policies. We don't want to face the divine consequences of disobedience. I appreciate Hebrews chapter 12. The author of Hebrews actually is analyzing Exodus chapter 19. He's looking at this text. And and then here's the conclusion that he makes after talking about Israel's experience on the mountain. He says in uh, verse 28 of Hebrews 12, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God's a consuming fire. Consuming fire. It's a direct reference to Exodus 19. It's the experience that Israel had on top of the mountain. Let us worship God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're worshiping the same God of Exodus 19 today. So then What does fear look like for us? We're not having the same experience that the Israelites had on Mount Sinai. So what does fear look like for a believer today? Well, I have a couple ideas. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never trusted in Jesus as your Savior. You've never by faith believed that he died for your sin. In eternity, either we pay for our own sin and suffer in eternity in the lake of fire, or Jesus pays for our sin, and we get to enjoy eternity with God. Those are the only two options. And we receive this gift of salvation by faith, by trusting in Christ. In that way, the righteous wrath of God is applied to Jesus on the cross, is taken off of our account. If if you don't know Christ, then there should be a, a fear of God's wrath, a fear of punishment a fear of condemnation but God's given you <laughs> the most beautiful solution he's given you the cross he wants a relationship with you it's not just the fear that motivates repentance it's love isn't it but for those of us that know Christ do we fear wrath do we fear condemnation absolutely not romans 8:1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ so we don't have to fear the death penalty, but then what are we afraid of? A couple thoughts. First, if you know Christ, you should be afraid of the Lord's discipline. Hebrews 12, earlier than the verses that I read, says that the Lord disciplines those he loves. That would be one of those verses I wouldn't mind just crossing out. Disciplining those you love? Yeah. Yeah. Just like a godly parent disciplines their daughters and their sons, God disciplines us. Now, what in the world does that look like? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the nuances of God's discipline of his people. If I had to guess, discipline's going to be a little more severe when someone willfully, continually disobeys God's command than when someone accidentally disobeys his command. I would say that. If you're giving into sin continually, saying, you know, God's going to forgive me. Um, You can expect his discipline. I wouldn't recommend continuing in sin just to find out what the discipline would be. Repent today before you face the discipline tomorrow. But God's heart and discipline is restorative, isn't it? He wants our heart. He wants our allegiance. He wants our worship. The second thing that we should be fearful of, I'm sure the list is long. I just have two tonight. The second is wasting what God's given us. We should have a fear of standing before God on that judgment day that all believers will face, longing to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, but instead hearing, you know, I gave you so much, but you invested minimum. I'm convinced each one of us need to grow in a high view of God, making God big and making us small. Read the Psalms. Read Isaiah. Spend time in prayer, saying, God, make you big. Make me small in my life. Make my circumstances small. Give me a high view of you. It'd be a great thing for us to spend time praying this week. Now, fear is certainly a motivation of obedience. Is it the only motivation of obedience? No, because when we have a healthy fear of God, we get to experience the joy of a relationship with God. Fear, it doesn't eliminate joy. Fear grows our joy. Because when we understand the greatness of God, then God's goodness becomes even more profound. When we understand his otherness and his absolute holiness, then we should be even more amazed that he longs to save us and redeem us and welcome us into his family. God is both great and good. And we come to understand his greatness in deeper ways. Then his goodness will become even greater. I pray that an encounter with God has changed your life. Let me pray. Father, we have a simple prayer tonight. May you become bigger and bigger in our hearts and in our lives. And may our own view of ourselves become less and less. Father, forgive us for the moments when we just have too high a view of ourselves and when we have too low a view of you. Help us balance both your greatness, your otherness, your holiness, but your goodness, your love, and your grace and your mercy as we walk as your ambassadors, balancing both grace and truth. As we spend some time dialoguing, talking a little bit at our tables tonight, uh, may that be a helpful way for us to apply what we've heard. In Jesus' name, amen.